is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The military says the threat of a government shutdown will not impede progress to drain the Red Hill underground fuel tanks. This morning, we talked with Brigadier General Michelle Link, a deputy commander of the task force, who underscored that point. So we want to reassure uh, you and the community that in the event of a federal government shutdown, it will not impact the defueling schedule. Secretary of Defense, as I stated, has exempted all personnel supporting the defueling of Red Hill from a potential furlough. Uh, all contracts are in place and all personnel uh, will continue to support uninterrupted in spite of what may or may not happen relative to a shutdown. We are on plan and will continue to keep the community informed if anything should change. And we are just weeks away from the start of the draining of these tanks. You have scheduled an open house for next week? Correct. We are three weeks out from the start of defueling. We are still on plan, but a flurry of activity as we complete final preparations and coordination with both the EPA and DOH. We are planning one last defueling open house on October 3rd. This will be another opportunity for the community to come out and interface with the directors, with the personnel that have been responsible for the execution of all of the tasks and repairs and and training thus far in the event that there are any last questions they'd like to ask, if they would like to talk through operations. So we will have poster boards there. We will have feedback and the ability for the community to interact with personnel if they have any specific questions. We have just finished this process of unpacking and repacking the lines of uh, the tank system to be able to make sure that, you know, when you actually begin this operation that there are no additional leaks or releases of fuel. Can you explain what happened? Because there was a a small leak, uh, and I know the fuel was recovered, but was it a a faulty weld, a faulty valve? So when we did repacking, we knew and anticipated that there would likely be weepage around valves or flanges. The system had been dry for nearly a year. Once you start to energize the system, when things become wet again with the reintroduction of fuel, it takes a little bit of while for those seals to re-energize. And so we had significant presence in repair teams and sweep teams that were tracking all of the repairs that had been made. It was not a weld issue. We had several locations where there were weeps, so we don't characterize those as a leak, meaning there was nothing that was actually dropping or dripping, just a little bit of wetness around maybe the flange or the valve that was corrected immediately with a tightening action. We had one weep that was from a repair that we had made in the underground pump house to a low point drain. That was a repair uh, where we had replaced something previously. It went through testing, past testing, but when we reintroduced fuel, we had to actually crawl down into the underground pump house. This is below the aquifer, underneath the grate, underneath the pipeline to find the weep. It was that remote and it was contained. It initially started with a drop forming once every 90 seconds. We were able to tighten the system down uh, so that it was once every two hours approximately. However, we were concerned that when we equalized, that may uh, become problematic. We tried to repair the system intact without removing the fuel, but because that, that section was wet, the material wouldn't cure. So we made the decision out of an abundance of caution to isolate that section of line Uh, drain the fuel, conduct a repair. We capped that low-point drain, and then we reintroduced the fuel and proceeded with a repacking evolution and have not had any subsequent weepage or presence of fuel uh, in that particular area. We continue to rove that pipeline 24 hours a day through multiple shifts, and since repacking and the evaluation of the integrity of that line, we have not had any subsequent weepage or any issues with the pipeline integrity. We are continuing in the next two weeks to go through our final pre-defueling material assessment, and that includes cycling of valves and checking other locations to ensure proper alignment and functionality ahead of defueling. I recall that there were efforts going to be made to make sure that all the cameras were operational in the system. Has that all been done? That has been done. All cameras are operational to a very high degree of sensitivity. The ability to scan and move those cameras was used during repacking. So we tested and evaluated that system integrity as well. 
Those cameras are used both by the control room currently and in conjunction with our roving security and fire watch. As far as uh, the procedures when you actually start to drain, have you had discussions about who would be responsible if there is a snafu? You know, would you look to the contractor? Uh, Has that been sorted out? So that has all been sorted out. We have a robust multi-layered response plan that was part of our regulatory requirements in support of defueling and to demonstrate preparedness for multiple type of scenarios. In that capacity, what we have done is evaluate a most likely scenario that we have put mitigating actions in place for, as well as the most dangerous scenario tied to a, a spill or an incident of leak. We have over 400 measures, protective measures, that we put in place to safeguard the aquifer in the event of a release or a spill. We have executed successfully in a multi-layered interagency approach, seven different spill drills and rehearsals, uh, one of which was also a roving security and fire watch drill uh, that we did in conjunction with our 11 interagency partners. In each one of those scenarios, those are situational dependent. So it's not going to be the same response for each. In addition, we also work with Navy Region Hawaii. They are responsible for the coordination and situational awareness in the event of a mishap with a Hawaii Emergency Orders Emergency Operations Center. And all of this was done in conjunction with the EPA and DOH. So we have put in measures to protect both the environment and the aquifer. We have personnel that have been trained in assigned tasks, activities, and drills, and we've put aggressive response drills and other measures in place in the event that a response would be required. That includes protective measures uh, along the the potential fuel path. It includes the um, fire watch team with the additional a layered response for the fire extinguishers that are located throughout the facility, the sodium bicarbonate, in addition to the water suppression and the coordination with fed fire. So it was quite an exhaustive effort to develop the response plans and to think through the potential scenarios that could be impacted during defueling operations to ensure that we had accounted for mitigations appropriately. So you have done then in-person drills as opposed to just tabletop drills with the various agencies? Correct. We have done in-person drills. The last one we had culminated on August 18th. We did a most dangerous drill with the interagency partners. That was an in-person drill. And, And when I say that, that means we stand up the emergency operations center. We stand up the regional operations center. We set up an incident command post in conjunction with the EPA and DOH. They are on site. Uh, simulating on-scene coordination as they would in in any other type of uh, large-scale response. We actually deploy the equipment, the booms into the harbor, the other type of protective means, the skimmers. We have oil spill response on contract. We actually develop and devise scenarios that we walk through uh, as if they were uh, a real-time scenario, but in a rehearsed environment where the teams are all on station, equipment is deployed, and personnel are, are manned and ready uh, as if they would be in a real-time event. So we also did a most likely drill in early June, a most likely spill release drill in early June. We did a repacking drill um, back in April, uh, and then we also did some additional tabletop exercises in coordination with the, the tanker type of response. That was Brigadier General Michelle Link, who we talked to earlier this morning. We'll continue our conversation with the general uh, right after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. HPR is hiring. We're looking for an experienced fundraising professional to serve as our major and planned giving manager. This person will successfully nurture relationships with our major donors and help HPR expand our donor base. 
Learn more about this position at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash strong. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and if you're just joining us, we're continuing our talk with Brigadier General Michelle Link, the Deputy Commander of the Red Hill Joint Task Force. She tells us that the EPA and state health officials have signed off on the Red Hill repairs as well as the response and water protection plans. Uh, They are still working through the uh, proposed work order and plan a walkthrough on October 10th. We did ask General Link about Uh, tank number 20, which is completely full with fuel and located at the very top of the facility and near the site of a pipe rupture. I don't have concerns about that tank for a few reasons. And while it is a true statement that that tank has the most fuel in it, the failures that caused the rupture were attributed to the surge events. And those repairs were made, validated, uh, and assessed, excuse me, and, and checked. We have equalized the, the fuel, the pressure on the line today currently to tank 20 uh, for JP5 up to that tank level. The corrective actions that were put in place subsequent to the November release were attributed to the event that caused the release. So that included dresser coupling repairs. That included repairs that were largely tied to surge events such as the introduction, excuse me, of pressure transducers, as well as the equalization lines, changes and updates to operations orders, uh, rehearsals, and zone watch standards. Plus, we are going to be draining the tank via gravity draining. It is not going to be pressurized using pump. I just want to say that knowing that that would be the potential worst-case scenario, we developed a response plan and coordinated risk reduction measures that would address that unlikely scenario, knowing it was the fullest tank and the farthest away from the pier. You can't drain that one first, can you? No, that one will have to be drained uh, last. Are you fairly confident that when you start to drain, you know, these valves, they're shut off, that those are going to hold? We are confident. We have both an electronic and a manual means of closing valves. We have done continual assessment of the valves currently. We have done multiple um, repairs and tests throughout the repair process, as well as we have a robust test management plan that includes individual repairs that were made, the testing, the pipeline integrity, valve integrity checks that we've done. We've done final pre-safety walkthroughs top to bottom where we've addressed every single component within the pipeline just to do another layer of eyes on. And as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, we are in a final pre-defueling material assessment phase right now where we're act- actively cycling valves and, and components to ensure the integrity of them prior to the execution of defueling. And in the event of a power outage? So in the event of a power outage, we have redundancy. We have backup generators that are part of our tracking operationally for integrity that would go into play. In the event of a power outage where we were not able to, in some sort of extreme case, unable to automatically close something electronically that would need it, uh, we would have the ability to manually close valves. However, in a power outage, it wouldn't impact the ability for that fuel to continue gravity draining into a, in a waiting tanker. You have been doing these drills with, uh, you know, all of the, the necessary personnel, you know, but we are going through a COVID surge. Are we all buttoned down when it comes to, you know, if you've got people out, you know, who steps in and are they adequately trained? We are. We have redundancy built in. We have taken a systems of systems approach to defueling. Personnel and operations are one means of that. And and you are right. It's not a matter of this 
how many people you have supporting the mission, but the appropriate skills and the appropriate personnel to do the, the operations piece in the control room or to do the port operations with the tanker ship. So we track and monitor uh, individuals down to the job, uh, the skills to make sure that we have the appropriate crew rest cycle, that we have the appropriate personnel in place. And we are tracking operationally every person that is in support of this mission and their availability to support, and that includes health, medical, any other requirement that, that could potentially impact the mission. We have gone through wargaming to develop mitigation actions in the event and have built in redundancy means both from personnel and equipment. Okay, so you don't foresee any problem where if half the people are out with COVID that you'd have to postpone? No. Okay. Are there any additional procedures that you're taking to protect the military families and the general public in the event of, of another spill, if it somehow makes its way into the drinking water again? So in the event, we, we are working through and in coordination with the emergency management leadership, both within Hawaii, EPA, and DOH, in the event that there were something that exceeded the capacity of our resources to respond to, what an integrated response would look like to protect the military families and the community uh, so that it would be open and transparent and it would be a synchronized effort. So we are looking at those contingencies and planning for the what if. We certainly hope that we never get to that point. We are planning so that we never get to that point, but we are also making sure that we do that worst case level of planning. So in the event that there would be a requirement We've already thought through the necessary steps and actions and coordination that would be required should we need to progress into a subsequent phase. Any concerns that you have just on, you know, material standards, given what was available when they built this thing and, and you know, the standards that we've got today? So, so you're correct. The standards in the equipment today would be a lot different than when the facility was built 80 years ago. What I can speak to are the, the routes from the tank to the tankers themselves and the, the focus that we put on those, those repairs. We did not modernize the facility from top to end. That would take years and that would, would prohibit removing the fuel and the threat from the aquifer as quickly and safely as possible. So from the tank to the tankers and that flow path for those tanks, we have done that uh, detailed material assessment that was done as well with uh, independent assessments of the integrity, those identified repairs, those upgrades have all been made and tested and validated. And we have assured the integrity of that system uh, in the path from the fuel, from the tanks to the tanker. Any additional requirements on the down end, you know, at, at Hotel Pier as the fuel gets moved on to tankers? So while we will be using Hotel Pier for defueling, mm -hmm. which has also been thoroughly tested to confirm its safety, both federal and state authorities mandate a multiple assessment of the pier's infrastructure, which we completed. We have also implemented our own inspections and testing to further reduce risk and to build resiliency into, into the system there. I would just like to assure you and the community that we continue to do final preparations. We are prepared. We are trained. We have mitigations in place, and we are working diligently to remain on plan to start defueling on October 16th, and we appreciate the opportunity to provide that input. And as well, one last reminder, too, for the community, if there are any questions, please feel free to come to the open house on October 3rd. Uh, and if there are any other, other uh, information sought, uh, don't forget to check in with the app. We'll keep continue to keep that updated as we move through key milestones here uh, and then as we start defueling on October 16th. That was Brigadier General uh, Michelle Link talking about draining of the fuel lines earlier this month. Uh, next on tap is the defueling of the tanks, again expected to begin on October 16th. And a reminder again, Joint Task Force Red Hill uh, is holding a public open house on Tuesday, October 3rd at Cahey Lagoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Our reality check today reveals another hurdle to scale before a new jailhouse can be built. Honolulu Civil Beats uh, Chad Blair has our reality check. Hi, Chad. 
Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so uh, they're going to have to move OCCC at some point because rail's coming down there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's actually quite near the last time I was on Dillingham, but um, there's a snag, as Kevin Dayton is reporting. The Department of Public Safety, as we have been reporting for a number of years now, wants to move the Oahu jail, wants to build a new one in Halava Valley. Of course, that's also where the, uh, the medium security facility is, the prison. Uh, but the problem is, is the location that has been agreed upon is the animal quarantine station there in Halava, and it is still in use. So even though millions of dollars have been spent on planning for a new OCCC, there really hasn't been any progress financially or in terms of a timeline on moving that, that quarantine facility. Uh, Tommy Johnson, who runs DPS, says the Department of Agriculture, which runs the, the quarantine facility, never received any funding uh, or planning design money for, for a new facility. So you can't build you know, a new jail on top of a quarantine. You have to find another site for the quarantine. And it's not for lack of asking, right? <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, Sharon Hurd uh, of the DOA did talk to Kevin and said there's, there's no firm timeline, but they have not been able to really get anything out of the legislature. And Hurd is saying that it's going to be probably at least two or three years uh, before there could be any progress made on, on that facility. Uh, Tommy Johnson, meantime, is saying you know, it may even take longer. Ideally, back in the day, this should have been a package deal, right? You should have taken them up together, the quarantine facility and the, and the new OCCC. Johnson is now telling Kevin, boy, this could push things back maybe even further. The original timeline was maybe break ground on construction on the jail in 2025, uh, and then maybe get that done four or five years later. But that, in terms of Kevin's reporting, seems like an optimistic timeline. Yeah, but every year we wait, it's ka-ching, ka-ching, you know, construction <laughs> yeah. costs go up. Boy, does this, does this sound familiar? <sighs> like the rail, and I don't mean to laugh because it is frustrating, but yes, that, that is a very good point. Uh, things don't get uh, any less um, expensive. Uh, there is also the concerning that the concerns that OCCC continues to deteriorate right now, the latest, I think capacity is 954. Uh, inmates, uh, but they are now at 1044, so uh, nearly over 100. Some of those folks in jail cells meant for two are holding three people. And that means at least one person has to sleep on the floor. Um, but uh, right now, it's, it, it is a very big concern about this. I should add one other thing as well, I think is a good point. Uh, Kevin did talk to Mark Hashim at the legislature, who is saying, you know, with all the Lahaina rebuilding that's going to be necessary, along with a new Aloha Stadium, uh, maybe a new jail for Hilo, uh, maybe a new section for the women's correctional facility here on Oahu, you may not have the workers. You have to import them. Maybe the priority shouldn't be OCCC, given all the other work that's needed. Yeah, so not only more expensive, but then, uh, uh, yeah, getting the construction crews to do the construction is going to be a problem. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, yes, it is. And we should also say there has always always been a longstanding concern on the part of uh, criminal justice reform folks that really the idea should be trying to get low-risk offenders, mental health services, get them uh, drug treatment services, that just putting more people into the jail is not the solution to our problems. Yes, and, and that is an important point. Uh, but then we also have to weigh the fact that you know, we don't want another uh, move by the federal government to uh, intervene and have to take over a facility, which has happened in the past. Correct. And there's also the concern about lawsuits. Meanwhile, optimistically, we may be looking at $900 million, that is $900 million for a new OCCC. I, Captain, this story is not going away. I know. Why is that? We keep doing the same stories over and over again. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, they are going to have to do something because uh, rail is going to be uh, barreling through there uh, pretty soon. And, uh, right. But, yeah, and it's a head-scratcher because in order for uh, the Oahu Correctional Center to go there in Halava, you got to move the agriculture quarantine station. Yeah, dogs and cats, and <laughs> yeah. a sad story, but kudos to Kevin for finding this latest scoop. Okay, well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Kevin. That was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org.
next time on The World, maybe you grew up with breakdancing in the 80s, but this generation has elevated breaking to a competitive sport. We got so much recognition, and finally our art is noticed. That's a really good thing. Breakdancers and their art setting sights on the Olympics, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana, working to protect and manage Oahu's water resources since 1929 for fresh water now and for future generations. Boardofwatersupply.com. Chances are somebody out there knows something about the death of two young men, two young Marines, in East Honolulu 43 years ago. The day was September 7, 1980. 21-year-old Rodney Padilla, whose nickname was Rocky, and 19-year-old Lance Corporal uh, Larry Martins left Kaneohe Marine Base for a night out in Waikiki. Uh, it's not clear if they actually made it there, but they would never return to their base. Instead, their bodies were found at Honolulu Bay. The military's Naval Criminal Investigative Service took over the lead in this cold case from the Honolulu Police Department in 2021. NCIS Special Agent Leslie Smith and Investigator Phil Camaro joined us in studio earlier this morning to talk about the cold case. NCIS, or the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, um, conducts investigations typically felony level, so um, homicides, sexual assault investigations, large-scale larceny investigations for the United States Navy and Marine Corps. So our presence is pretty much wherever you have a Marine Corps base or a Navy base. We are a global agency, and, and we really work closely with our military communicate communities, but also with state and local law enforcement to try to prevent crime and obviously investigate criminal acts. And uh, NCIS has a cold case unit. Yes, yes we do. Uh, NCIS has always kind of been forward leaning in regards to solving investigations or are constantly looking at our investigations. Back in 2019, our director really focused on the impact these cases have on, you know, specifically on solving them or at least getting some resolution for the families. It, it has a profound impact on the families and on our military and our, our local communities. So they, they reinvested in those investigations, uh, set up different teams across the globe. Phil and I are both assigned to the team here in Hawaii. And those investigations pertain to unsolved homicides, uh, missing or unidentified remains, and unsolved sexual assault investigations. And Phil, you know, you folks came out in 2015, you know, to announce that NCIS was assisting the Honolulu Police Department uh, in this cold case. But now NCIS has taken over the lead. But you know, dealing with the families, how much this means, you know, if you could solve this case. Yes, absolutely. It's so important to keep the case alive. Just September 7, 1980, actually made 43 years since the anniversary of the passing of both Larry and Rocky. We're hoping today and we're grateful that we're we're here on your podcast as we know this is a statewide audience that you have that someone may come forward when you folks came out in 2015 you know i think you had new evidence new leads the story that we heard from the family was that uh, these two marines were going to go out for a night in waikiki i don't know if they ever made it there but obviously they did not make it back to base yeah, that, that is correct. You know, there's there's been a lot of changes in, over the last 40-some years in regards to how we do investigations. In, in 1980, Honolulu Police Department really was tenacious in regards to following any and every lead. Today, we would have invested more, I guess, effort in establishing a timeline of victimology in regards to what Larry and Rocky were doing prior to their deaths. So Honolulu Police Department, through witnesses, was able to establish that, yeah, these two individuals had, had recently met up, become friends when they were working at Anderson Hall on the base. And Anderson Hall is the, the dining facility. So Rocky and Larry had returned from deployment and were assigned to kind of to subsidize the dining facility at Anderson Hall. 
and that they decided to go out. What that means, we still don't know. We have indications from what Honolulu Police Department was able to ascertain that maybe they went to a club in Kaneohe, maybe they went to a different clubs in Waikiki, but we don't know who they were engaging with or really what they were doing prior to them being found on the 7th of September. And Phil, maybe you can explain to people what part of Monolulu Bay we're talking about because, you know, that boat launch there, I mean, that's a really heavily trafficked area. You've got all the canoe clubs, the fishermen. So explain to our listeners what the scene was like back then. In 1980, a small boat harbor uh, was present as it is today. However, the parking lot was unpaved and it was basically made of rock, coral, sand, and dirt. There was no lighting in the general area and where the vehicle was found, a 1971 uh, Buick Coupe, two doors, where our descendants were found laying on the ground next to. That vehicle was also located right in the center of the unimproved parking lot, and there was a large Calvi tree in the general area. Across from the street on Kalaniano Highway, where uh, the small boat harbor is, the closest intersecting street is Hawaii Drive. On that highway, there were several houses, rows of houses at, the, at that time. At that time as well, that area was known for, for people to go and park and talk story and perhaps even drink. So that's very curious of how our Marines ended up from the Marine base all the way to that small boat harbor in Hawaii. And my understanding is that you folks found the scene there, some writing in the sand, that, which leads you to believe that there may have been some kind of gathering there? Yes, from what um, Honolulu Police Department documented when they do, looked at and assessed the crime scene, there are indications that there was potentially a few individuals that might have observed uh, the assault and, and potentially the murders, you know, either whether they heard a snippet of it or were directly there when things when things turned. Um, but there was also documented in an adjacent area to where Larry's vehicle was found, um, was riding in the sand. We're not at this time able to tell you what that writing was, but based off of the tide charts from that time, we do believe that put someone or, or a few people there that potentially overheard or saw all snippets of this engagement. And based on some of the reports that I saw early on, they thought they were beaten, but then the autopsy revealed that they were shot. So I don't know, can you talk at all about, you know, what was found, ballistics, the gun? When homicide detectives arrived, right, and did a close examination of the scene, both Larry and Rocky had been beaten, uh, they were assaulted, and they were bloodied. And the medical examiner did determine that both decedents were killed by gunshot wounds. At this time, um, to preserve the integrity of the investigation, we're not going to do anything further about the weapon or the ballistics at this time. Since four decades have passed, the technology has greatly improved, you know, with DNA, and obviously that's been key in solving a lot of cases. Anything else you can share about this case and DNA or, or new leads you might have? Yes, you know, so the advancements in, in forensics has been a phenomenal in regards to solving cases, but they're just one element, right? So a DNA will put someone at the scene, but it doesn't really provide us any context as to what was happening. And so Phil and I are, are really confident that this case is solvable, um, but we believe it's solvable by someone who maybe today feels comfortable coming forward with some information, um, whether that means you potentially socialized with Larry or Rocky at a club prior to them being found on the on the 6th of September or on the 7th of September or you were there at the location in Hawaii Kai or potentially were driven by driving by because those uh those little pieces those little that little information while you maybe think your your listeners maybe think it's oh it's it's just a small little tidbit could be invaluable as to setting the the scene and providing some context as to what Larry and, and uh, Rocky were doing prior to their deaths, who they were engaging with, and what happened. And so that's that's really where we're we're focused on in regards to hey, we are reassessing Honolulu Police Department, NCIS have constantly been reassessing the evidence that was collected to potentially find DNA or what they call trace evidence to link people to that location, um, but we also are fairly confident that someone within the community could potentially solve this case. And, you know, so much time has passed. We don't know if whoever's responsible is still alive, whether they may have moved elsewhere. Mm -hmm. 
but you kind of hope that back of their mind they know what happened here. I had not heard of of you folks having suspects in this case. Can you talk at all about persons of interest? So, you know, with, um, with Honolulu Police Department, they really received a lot of information, and it, it covered a gamut. Um, so there are various different people of interest or theories that were investigated at the time, and we continue to look at. And, and those range from anything from a, you know, a, just a conflict that turned awry to potential, you know, drug activity or, or activity that turned. So we are we are not shutting out anything. We are open to considering every aspect, um, but we we currently don't have one focus. So we're keeping an open open mind. Okay, but Phil, I guess it goes back to you know that the investigators, you know, at the Honolulu Police Department really tried to solve this, and it just went cold. Yes, cases like this uh, are very, very challenging. You know, 43 years we're talking about. But regarding unresolved cases of this nature, uh, what we've learned is that, as Leslie had talked about, you know, relationships changes. What we've learned, too, is that because of that, you know, someone who, for whatever reason, maybe had an alliance with the perpetrators, or maybe they were afraid, you know, Bottom line is they may now have the courage to come forward. They may now have the character to want to do the right thing. And that's how many of these cold cases have been resolved, because people did the right thing. And that's why this is crucial, that we're keeping the information out there, getting, uh, revisiting the case. We have hope, and uh, we uh, also For me personally, I continue to pray. What I really like is that um, it has been a team effort and um, people are persevering uh, to see resolve for the family and for Rocky and Larry. In your time with the Honolulu Police Department, I know you know you were with the missing persons detail for so long and there are those cases that you know just kind of nag at you that you wish you could you know get the evidence to find out exactly what happened. That's true. You know, I think uh, I'm not unlike other uh, investigators or detectives who um, have unresolved cases. You know, it it stays with you. But at the end of the day or at the end of your career, I know Leslie feels this way. I think I speak for Leslie that if we know that we did our best, I, re- I really believe things fall into play. And if it goes unresolved, we still know that we did our best. Any final thoughts, Leslie? Just about this particular case. To echo what you know, Phil said. This over the last few years, it's it's kind of like we've come to know little portions of of Larry and, and Rocky, and indirectly through their families, and and so it kind of sits with us as to the impact these these situations, these murders have on families, and not just Larry and Rocky's families, but there's there's other Hawaii families that have lost a loved one to violence, and some of those cases remain unsolved. And so we we are very optimistic that your your listeners, the the community, has the ability to solve this case. Maybe. Maybe the individuals involved are no longer with us, um, but it would potentially give closure to, to the both families. And we're, we're, NCIS is fairly confident in that in Honolulu Police Department that you know there's different platforms if individuals want to report information. NCIS, like Honolulu Police Department, does have a tip line. Ours is on our website, so it's a public website, ncis.navy.mil, and you can go and submit a tip. There's a few different platforms you can do that on. Um, and it does provide the ability to be completely anonymous. Um, so individuals can go in, put in some information. Again, uh, you know, any detail is potentially relevant. Um, and if you want to provide your, your contact information, then we'll reach out to you directly. But otherwise, it can be anonymous. We have also offered a reward. There's a $5,000 reward if information provided leads to the identification of those that individual or those individuals involved in solving this case. All right. Well, uh, Leslie and Phil, thank you so much for coming in to talk about this case. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was uh, NCIS Investigator Phil Camaro and Special Agent Leslie Smith. They're asking anyone who knows about this cold case to help give the families of the deceased find some closure. We will be hearing from one of the brothers of the victims in this case. Uh, You can look for information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, for more information. 
a wearable ring that detects date rape drugs and desalination technology using solar power. Those are just two projects. They'll be part of a new program at the University of Hawaii called Patents to Products. The goal is to develop the next generation of technology innovators. The one-year program will offer intellectual property training and industry mentorship. Uh, Rebecca Chung is with the Office of Innovation and Commercialization. She talked with the conversations at Russell Subiano. So the Patents to Products program is a new and unique innovation fellowship program launched by the University of Hawaii. And we've created this program as part of a $2.4 million grant initiative supported by the Office of Naval Research to help expand innovation pathways and grow greater opportunities at the University of Hawaii and within the state. And so the overall mission for the Patents to Products program is to educate and empower our next generation of academic innovators. This is specifically tailored for our PhD candidates and postdoctoral scholars to provide them multidisciplinary training that will help them to develop an entrepreneurial mindset and also gain skills in business fluency so that they can advance the development and the commercialization of these impact-driven technologies that are developed within the university in hopes to make a difference in our everyday lives. I know this is a a year-long program. Is it something that's in addition to their current workload? PhD candidates and postdoctoral fellows are engaged in research already, and so the Patents to Products Fellows will be developing skills that really complement the research that they're working on. Um, And so they will be receiving a wide array of training opportunities to broaden their skill set and increase their capacity for innovation. So, for example, they will be receiving intellectual property training, technology transfer guidance, network expansion opportunities to gain industry mentorship. All of this is to help translate the innovative ideas that they're working on in research into meaningful commercialization opportunities that have impact. I know a few people who have invented something and tried to bring it to market. And I see that it can be a long and difficult road, especially if you're doing it by yourself or or you haven't had the experience before. How difficult would it be for these students to bring their innovative projects to commercialization without this training and this instruction? It's not easy. The pathway from research, from moving the technology from lab to market is not easy and it requires extensive collaboration. And that's where our office comes into play. The Office of Innovation and Commercialization manages, markets, and commercializes intellectual property and technologies at the university. So it's really important for researchers to collaborate with our office team to strategize how to navigate this commercialization pathway, starting from uh, submitting an invention disclosure, developing necessary pathways for protecting the patent, and then asset development, you know, marketing the technology to see how this can penetrate the market toward commercialization. And at the very end, it's either a potential licensing opportunity for co-developing the technology further or seeking investment funding for continued venture development or participating in a incubator accelerator program for successful startup spin-out, etc. I think most inventors are just looking for the opportunity to be able to get their product to market, to, to reach a, a wider audience and to, at some point, you know, be able to generate revenue from it. Is the revenue part of it also a way that the students can be able to earn an income from the things that they have worked on and invented? Yes, of course. I I think what I wanted to highlight was that at the end of the day, innovation really happens at the intersection of disciplines. So it's really not just being a scientist or an engineer developing a novel technology that can commercialize is also bringing in expertise in business development as well as technology transfer in protecting the intellectual property and really working together to orchestrate the strategy to bring it to market together. And so it's a very challenging process. It requires very strategic timing, 
interest from all the parties involved, et cetera. Let's talk about a couple of the projects that will be part of this program. I admit most of them kind of go over my head. You know, <laughs> Most of them I was looking at, it's like, okay, I need to do a little bit more research before I understand what this one's about. But there were a couple that I think were pretty straightforward. One of the first ones was the wearable sensor for detecting date rape drugs. Can you talk a little bit about that project? So we have a really interesting wide array of projects in the inaugural cohort of the Patents to Products program. I'd like to highlight Dr. Kaylee Clark. She is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. And she is working on a wearable sensor development for the detection of date rape drugs. So she is leveraging additive manufacturing 3D printing to develop a very stylish and functional ring that is equipped with very sophisticated and integrated sensors for personal detection of rohypnol in beverages. This is in efforts to mitigate the prevalent drug-facilitated results that occur. The sensor development, the foundation behind the development of the sensors is well-equipped to detect very quickly before the onset of the assault. So this is intended for a sensor to detect the drugs well before the onset of an assault. So this is truly capturing very important information much more rapidly than other technologies that may be available out there. Another project I've read about is the desalination technology that uses solar thermal conversion. Can you talk about that project? Sure. So the desalination project will be executed by Dr. Suman Chetri. He is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Hawaii, Manila. And so his innovative desalination technology uses solar energy to solve freshwater shortage issues by replacing existing energy-intensive processes with something that is more sustainable and green for water purification. Amongst the other projects that are part of the program, is there another one that you'd like to highlight and kind of break down in like a layman's term of what it is and how it will be used? Sure. So I'd like to preface that this program has a focus in the blue economy space. As you know, we have a lot of emerging industries in this area that require innovative solutions and technologies to address climate change, sea level rise, sustainability. And as you know, these are areas that we excel in here at the University of Hawaii in terms of research and innovation. So I'd like to highlight a another project. This project is Danielle Bartz. She is a PhD candidate in the Interdisciplinary Marine Biology Graduate Program here at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. And she's developing an e-DNA filtration system that can improve and enhance our understanding of ocean environments through research. So the eDNA filtration, what DNA is it filtering? Is it organisms that live in the ocean? Yeah, so there are a lot of various shark populations, for example, in our ocean environments. And in order to understand population science of how they travel through the oceans and as it relates to ocean dynamics, eDNA is collected to be able to better understand their trajectory within the ocean environments. I get the sense that it's valuable for Hawaii or the University of Hawaii to be seen as a hotbed for STEM leaders and innovation and the, and the ability to bring these innovations to market as quickly and as smoothly as possible. Does that play into the value of the program to Hawaii's economy? Yes, absolutely. This will help grow greater innovation capacity as well as opportunities for these patents to products fellows to explore potential career pathways as our program provides a wide array of support to navigate this commercialization pathway to advance the technologies further. 
we then now have matured the technology to then explore how we can commercialize the technologies, establish potential startup spin-ups out of the university, all of which will then potentially contribute to workforce development of our future here. Yeah, I think it would be really cool for for the rest of the world to look toward Hawaii when it comes to innovation and bringing products to market quickly so that they can be integrated sooner rather than later. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you talking story with me. Thank you. And that was Rebecca Chung with the UH Office of Innovation and Commercialization. Talking with Dave Bears Russell Subiono, Chung is looking for a second cohort of students to participate in the Patents to Products program, which starts in November. Look for links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. today. Tomorrow, we plan to have University of Hawaii President David Lassner join us in studio. What's behind his decision to step down next year? What would you like to know? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also listen back to the conversation on our website or on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you find your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.